Good evening and welcome to this uh, special edition of Mwango Spaces uh, this uh, Thursday. Uh, the discussion is around startups in Kenya and we have Faris here and Moses uh, introduce Faris and then Moses introduce himself. Faris, thank you so much for having me. I've known some of the uh, speakers for decades. I think I've known Moses for the last 15 years and Katrina for a similar term. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and yeah, guide the conversation. Sometimes spaces is a bit tricky. We're getting to catch on on board. So maybe I'll have Moses introduce himself. Uh, it's really good that you've known them because I got the speakers without your knowledge. So it's really nice that uh, you actually know them very well. So Moses, maybe you can introduce yourself as I try to help Kachwana get on board. Yeah, thank you very much. And it's a great pleasure to be on this uh, Twitter space this evening. Uh, to talk about startups and I suppose entrepreneurship, it's an area that's very close to my heart. Having been one now for almost 21 years. And I think the topic of conversation will really be interesting from the perspective of what's happening in the market right now. I'm the founder and CEO of Dotsavi, which is a digital marketing agency that I started in my bedroom 21 years ago. I've been doing this for a while. I'm also a blogger and a podcaster at MosesCanBeBar.com. And I've also worked in a range of different startups actually throughout my career from the days when we're connecting people to the internet, working with people like Formnet and Africa Online, uh, you know, working with what is today Gigi, that was a founder of when it was Dealfish and Moby. In fact, my entire working career in technology has been essentially through startups. So yeah, I'm delighted to be here, you know, share experiences and also maybe have a, an interesting discourse about what's happening and the way forward and the likes. Thank you so much. But I think Kachwana has joined us, has managed to join us. Maybe you can introduce yourself and then I'll hand it back to Faris and me to get the discussion. Thank you. I, you. I was listening to Faris and yeah, we have known each other for a while. I've known Moses for a while. And uh, as Moses was talking about his life being around startups, initially I was doing the startup, like I was a techie initially, but then I moved on to writing about startups. So with time now I moved on to that, but... How I started my life was more of building startups. Let's try and start the conversation. I'm in the background checking out questions and all that. Now, so far as maybe you can guide us a bit on how we can go about this. How about you? My feeling is that, and this is my own opinion, what we're seeing with startups is basically a shifting pattern for what was going on in the market. So like in 2020, Bill Ackman wrote a paper, basically Pershing Square Capital, and it he had his opinions on how the market would evolve. But the most important paper, in my view, was by Howard Marks in, I believe it was January 2021, on the fact that growth in a zero interest environment is more important than earnings. The reason I bring that up is ever since the financial crisis in 2008, we found ourselves, like basically all investors and entrepreneurs, in an environment where interest rates were near zero. And so capital was exceedingly cheap. And it was very easy for entrepreneurs to mistake that for a permanent state. And my theory on what's going on in the market is that we had inflation. People argue about whether it was supply side or what caused it. But the bottom line is we had inflation and interest rates in the US went up. And that shifted the interest of investors from growth to earnings. Because if the zero interest papers are giving you 5%, then 
and then there's zero risk rubber. Papers are giving you 5%. Then you want a higher return from your risk investment. And my belief is a lot of entrepreneurs got caught flat-footed because for a very long time, ever since 2010, thereabouts, your investors have been telling you, pursue growth, forget about profitability. Because their own investors, because any investor who is investing in us ultimately has an LP behind them. And the LPs are telling them, we want growth, we don't want earnings. And then the market shifted in 2021. And there's, there's an aphorism that when the tide goes out, we're swimming naked. And I believe many of our startups have been caught in that situation where the market was telling them to pursue a particular path. And then the market environment shifted and wanted the complete opposite of that. And they got caught up in the middle of that. I am not absolving them of blame. All I'm saying is this is the situation. So from somebody who's been experienced and has been running startups for 20 plus years, Moses has experience in Mobi, dot ETC. I'd just like to get what is his view on what went wrong. And then I'll jump to Katrina. Thank you so much. So my first experience many years ago is the internet service provider uh, paradigm, which were then the startups of the day. I worked at Africa Online, I worked at Homenet. Many of these businesses even then were funded by international bodies and uh, also local entrepreneurs. I worked in those for a number of years, and then I had this opportunity to set up my own um, business, which is Dotavi. And I never forget the way when I went to talk to people who I knew had money, I knew the bank was not, not going to be an option. I talked to various people and all I kept hearing was, you know what, I think you better just go get a job. So basically the first thing I noticed was there wasn't an appetite or an interest in a highly risky, potentially high payoff investment in what at the time was going to be a web agency. And that attitude was very interesting at the time because what it compelled you to do is go to market and actually build the business out of revenues. So from day one, we went out there, you know, knocked on doors, banged on doors, you know, got referrals and started onboarding our very first clients. But most of the revenue from then until to date has been internally generated sales. And what I found is that partnerships and associations and so forth, which also acted as a, a pathways to business and revenue and clients. I never had this notion in my head or understanding that you go out and raise around and then now that finances your business. My mindset and my context has historically always been go out there, sell a product, get the revenue and then cover your costs. And hopefully after everything is done, you have some revenue or some money remaining that you can then put into buying computers and other things in the business. Now, what I noticed, and this is something I picked up and you remember this, uh, Faris, as we saw things transforming, I think around the time, the likes of the iHub and all were coming to the market, we saw this sort of shift happening in the marketplace where there just seemed to be an abundance of revenue or rather investors looking for actually startups to invest into. And it wasn't uncommon to hear of a startup that really didn't even have a working product, getting maybe 20, 30, $50,000, $100,000, which seemed like astronomical amounts of money at that time for something that was essentially a proof of concept that had not been proven in the market. And I think what we had is we had a class of uh, aspiring entrepreneurs and startups that started to have this worldview or model of how entrepreneurship and startups work, which is basically come up with the idea or concept, put together a founder team, create maybe a minimum 
type of a product or concept. It may not even be a working product and go shopping around for somebody to sink in a bit of money that then allowed you to go forward. And then we also saw the emergence of many startup competitions and of course, accelerators and the incubators and the proliferating the market at the time. Does this added to that? Basically, you couldn't create a business without getting uh, some sort of funding round or something involved. And I think that permeated the whole space, as you pointed out, for the better part of the last 10, 15 years, to the extent that now that these startups that we're seeing, and some of them are really large, I'm even shocked at some of the updates I'm seeing in WhatsApp groups today that are faltering. And these are businesses that to many of us look like they had made it. But I think what the problem right now I'm seeing is that this notion that raising rounds and, you know, getting investment equated a successful business is now really being fractured to the extent that it finally looks like, wow, these guys really weren't what we thought they were. And you know, the burn rates were so high that you've gone through 20 billion shillings and you don't have something to show for it. It's not a viable, successful business. And for me, that's just amazing because in my mind, I'm almost thinking, hang on, this is basic business principles. You need enough customers to pay your bills. And of course, over time, you grow that to the point that you can reach some kind of a break even. But I feel like the dynamics of Silicon Valley and the way they were set up do not overlay in a market like Africa because maybe we don't have the same dynamics. And then also it depends on the model. Is it a B2C? Is it a B2B? You know, exactly where you're serving uh, and what is the opportunity to actually scale up? So those are my views in terms of that trajectory over the better part of 20 years. What I saw personally as an entrepreneur, I worked with international and local startups, many of them very well funded. And in some instances, yes, they did pull out of markets. They said Africa was not big enough. They experimented, but they weren't viable. But more importantly, the lesson learned, I think, is that we have to have this mentality that you're building something that is sustainable and able to actually cover its costs and do what a regular business does, which is it generates enough revenue with a margin to actually stay in business on its own two feet. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Moses. And I tell you, as somebody who's documented the last 15 or so years of technology evolution in Kenya, what are your views on what's happening now? Yeah, thank you. I think I agree with Moses in many aspects. He has given us the bit of history, which is, of course, what has happened in that period. My view now is you get this kind of uh, funding uh, for startups. It's like you're starting to build a house from the, the root, not from the, the foundations. So you have people getting money and, and they don't have clients. They get all this money. So they're floating around with the money. They hire so many people that they pay a lot. But the main supporting block, the foundation where you need to have clients who are paying and then you generate money, are not there. So if that's... If you are left alone, you're just falling flat because there's nothing to, to ensure that you, are, you, you, you remain where you are. So it's a model that worked perfectly for Silicon Valley. There's a documentary that I watched uh, recently. I think it was done by PBS and it's about the, the era of free money in the U.S. And it goes back to what Faris you are saying. That's, there's a period that the interest rate in U.S. was always made zero all through. And, uh, and when you hear most of the, where people are making money is, for example, big companies used to buy stock. So stock buyback, that was the main thing. You get, you get that money, uh, instead of improving or investing on something else, you either buy back your stock. So 
for the big company, it was always stocks going up and people buying back the stock. But for the startups, also because the money is free, so these people just get this money free. So you look around and say, okay, we invest in startup. And at that point, of course, interest rate in developing uh, countries like Africa was higher. Uh, like Kenya, for example, interest rate has been high. So then you look around and say, okay, maybe I can make some money in Africa. But immediately, obviously, even with that, the risk of investing in Africa is still there. So immediately the era of this free money ended, uh, meaning that the interest rate started going up in U.S. Uh, so then these guys say, okay, now it's better to invest in U.S. Um, so they now ran away. But at the same time, of course, COVID happened and the war in Ukraine. So when you look around, the money started to dry up. Either even for NGOs, I look around even for NGOs, the money dried up because the war in Ukraine for the Europe guys, they were taking money there. And for US, the interest rate is going up and then they take money there. So you are left without that money. So if you had no foundation as a startup in Kenya, then of course you're going to fall flat immediately. And the biggest problem we have is as a country, we have never built a local funding way or rather we don't have this locally funded venture capital or something like that. The likes of Safaricom have been trying to do something like that, but it's still very little, it's still very small. So if we had built that, maybe that would have helped, but we, we have not done that. So uh, that's a problem. So we are left with a situation where people need to uh, have uh, go back to the reality and start building business based on uh, the clients. And at the same time, I also re realized that most of the fundings, when they come in, most people don't believe on some of the startups they are running. I know when you look around, people like investing in, in real estate plots and other stuff. There is uh, something that maybe it's being said, but majority of people get this money and part of it goes to real estate or they start some computer selling shops in, in town or something like that. So part of it goes there and then part of it, of course, they keep up note with the part of it. If people don't think that what they are running is able to generate money in terms of getting clients. So they try to diversify their risk with that money. That's something that we have observed, of, of, of course, for some time now. Okay. Thank you so much, Katrina. And I'd like to scroll on the thread that you raised. So your view, if I understand you correctly, is basically that a lot of investors locally are fairly low risk. And so their natural inclination is to pump money into real estate and other traditional investments. So how do we, as a market, offer opportunities that they would be willing to invest in? I think I, I've observed something especially to do with the, 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 the way real estate has worked. For example, when people were being told to go and invest near a railway station, somebody asked me, in many places, people will run away from railway station. How did these people get convinced that near SGR is a good land investment? And when you look at it, it was more of a hype driven by radio stations, TV, and newspapers and other stuff. At some point, I thought, probably we have never done a good hype for some of our startups. That hype is not as coordinated as what I've seen with the real estate. 
and you can see in Kenya, uh, people, people, once they believe that something is making money for someone, they will run there. The history of Quill, history of people buying land near a railway line, and now they are stuck with there. I have so many people are trying to sell those land, and they are not able to. If you ask me, I think hype could help. I don't know how much that do, but hype could help. But uh, I also think hype alone is not enough. Uh, so after that, obviously, we need to look around and see what areas within the, the, the space you're able to build solid businesses. Because I, I think there are enough areas that people build solid businesses. I'm looking at even PR firms. There are a number of PR firms that locally started, and I see them doing very well. And it's not like they raised any money from somewhere. So I'm looking at that. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, you can build business um, around tech. But uh, also, I think majority of people who start this, I always just looking at it in a small way. Because if we can put resources together. So it's like in Kenya, we don't have this investing kind of mentality. If somebody starts a shop somewhere, we run to to put another shop instead of saying, okay, let me invest in this shop. It can, it becomes bigger, but if you go to any of the rural setting, you find that uh, the shop you left there near your, your shags is still the same at uh, 10, 20 years down the line. Nobody has ever thought, can I invest in this person? Because they have run this shop for years. They have the, the skin on the game. Uh, maybe we could put it, become a, a big hardware or something like that. But we don't have that. What we do is we see somebody making money on something, where, however small it is. What we want to do is to run and compete them instead of invest on them. To answer your question, yes, there are ways. Uh, first, we need to talk much. Um, we need to market our startup much better. And the true, um, I feel like we can change the culture of investing instead of competing. And then three, we also need to do much research to come up with solid uh, sectors or, or areas that uh, the startups could uh, make more money. Everyone wants to invest in the next big thing, even when there's no clear revenue or profitability model. So for instance, the first few years of Google, which has incidentally just turned 25, they had no clear monetization model. All they had was usage and they eventually figured out the revenue model and exploded. And so there's very clear tension between investing in disruptive innovation and being able to monetize that innovation. And how do you square that circle, Moses? I think for me, innovation and being in a startup, if I can just use my own personal experience, is often a process of seeing the future before it has arrived, right? So usually many startups that have gone on to become unicorns and eventually big tech monsters like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, you name it. There's really somebody who has this, the visionary, the person behind the business who has this incredible conviction or belief that they're going to take nothing and create something from nothing, right? And that means they've almost literally seen it as almost as real as it can be as something that is real today, but maybe it's 10 years out, okay? Now, I tend to think that the companies that end up becoming incredibly successful and uh, cash flow positive, sometimes without any funding, organically revenue driven from customers. Of course, there are instances where like Google, of course, they did get funding that allowed them to scale up, pay for servers and all uh, as they started to get the business to grow. 
I think you definitely need somebody on that team or within that startup was able to paint a very clear and, and compelling vision of what this business can become. Now, of course, there are many instances of other companies that we've seen, let's say we work where they had a very charismatic leader that managed to talk to the likes of, I think it was SoftBank and get a ridiculous amount of funding for a business model that is now basically fractured. But the reality is that you need somebody who's able to see the future, but is also able to build out the, can I call it the architecture or the framework that's going to actually bring it to life. And that's the business processes the teams, the people, the partnerships, all the things that create that ecosystem that make that business thrive and scale up to that extent. Now, my opinion, and I think that tension that you just mentioned between the ability to raise money versus the ability to generate revenues is always going to be a constant area of tension because unfortunately there's probably more, more money than good ideas in the marketplace, right? Meaning that only a handful of these startups actually going to become successful and viable, whereas the amount of money being thrown into the market might be more than that. Number two, I think one of the biggest challenges for investors, and right now you can imagine the biggest things that people are talking about are things like AI and all that, uh, will be, and I think even in Silicon Valley, a lot of money will be lost in this space as well. The fact that this is this new, bright and shiny thing, and even if it's not necessarily the most viable or the most compelling one, everyone has this appetite to be a part of it in one way or another, because that is where the hype and the momentum seems to live. And then you find in the market, and I'm going to just name maybe a few startups that you know, people may not even know about. I'll give you an example. There's a company called Tenki. Yeah, Tenki, I think, has been around maybe 30 years. And they focus on building software for insurance companies. And they have plants across Africa. And I think even parts of the Middle East. And you don't see them in the business daily. You don't see them in the nation. I used to find them on planes when I was flying to places like Nigeria and Tanzania where they're going to serve clients. And you don't hear a single thing about what the good work these guys are doing and the world-class product that they built that is serving insurance companies across the continent and beyond. Now, the other thing that I think is very dangerous is this idea between creating a startup that has a lot of hype and attracts a lot of investment, uh, but underneath it all, as we're discovering with some of the ones in the local market right now, it doesn't have the substance or doesn't have the legs to really go long-term. But then you find that the ones that are quietly toiling away, actually generating revenues, may not even want or even have an appetite for investors because they're already okay as it is, are the ones that actually we should be celebrating. They're not hype-driven. They're very pragmatic. They grow organically. Uh, they're not sexy. They're not fancy. They're not turning up in TechCrunch or anything like that. But these startups are viable and compelling in themselves. And I think we need to shift the balance between are we creating startups for the future that become significant businesses? Are we chasing that gravy train or rather the hype train in terms of something that looks bright and shiny and sexy, uh, but ultimately doesn't have the long-term legs? And I think that's a sad truth that, you know, investors have always gotten their fingers burnt. The startup entrepreneurs were misled or uh, possibly in some instances a bit delusional about the fact that this money will always keep coming. But a bottom line is a business has to generate a significant amount of revenue and have certain costs, and there needs to be a gap between that for it to sustain itself. And I think we need to find that balance between, yes, you might need funding to act as an accelerant to get your startup to a further, better place, given that maybe there's a window of opportunity that you need to close. But at the same time, and this is basic accounting, are you also significantly growing your revenue to a point that you're actually going to achieve a break even. And I know that, for instance, the jury was out for many years with the likes of Amazon, but the business fundamentals were compelling enough to say, you know what, even if this thing is not turning a profit, 
the growth is, growth is so substantial in actual revenue that eventually they were able to reach that point. Yeah. And there was a land grab there where they needed to get big fast, but the fundamentals proved the point. And case in point, I think I was just reading online in a WhatsApp group today uh, that Take a Lot is looking at how it, maybe it can help Yumiya survive. Take a Lot apparently did almost, I think, 800 and something million dollars in South Africa last year, a single market startup. And it's four times in revenue terms bigger than um, Jumia, which operates in quite a few markets across Africa. So I think we've got to look at all these things and ask ourselves, yes, we can raise funding, we can do the rounds, but fundamentally, is the business model valid? And that's why we always say in the startup world, don't create a solution looking for a problem. Create a viable business to begin with. Thank you. So I'd like to further explore what you've just said. Because effectively what you're telling me, there's a disconnect between who gets investment and what is a good investment. I'd, I'd, I'd want you to explain further why you think that disconnect exists and what is the primary cause of the disconnect. Okay. One of the reasons might be simple greed. The fact that an investor has got some money, it's burning a hole in his pocket. So their pocket as a business or a VC. And they see this bright and shiny opportunity. They have a, a mandate to invest in something. They'll do their various due diligences and probably they might invest in the best of the worst, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that was the best business they should have invested in, but they had to invest the money somewhere. It looked viable, it looked compelling. Sometimes I think it's also this huge view of trying to overlay maybe an international concept on a local market. I think we know the case of Kun Foods that came to Kenya. And there was this notion that what they're basically doing is trying to digitize the Kibanda that people have been going to for decades, just down the road from the office. It's cheap, it's affordable. And why are you doing what is already in the market? So have you done your validation to determine that this indeed is a problem that needs to be solved? Is there a problem? And I think that local market knowledge or that insight and the homework to understand whether or not this is viable, whether there is actually a need it will be one of the reasons why we are in this position. And then I think people are always trying to create something that maybe is a parallel or a reflection of something that has been done somewhere else, but now doing it within a local market. Maybe the consumer nuances and the behaviors and the, the market uh, dynamics are completely different and therefore it will not work in a market like ours. But going back again to the thesis, I think the question is almost saying, you know, does the Silicon Valley approach actually work in a place like Kenya or Africa? And I think I'm of the view that it doesn't work exactly the same way. In fact, I'd almost say that it doesn't work at all. And I think you got to look at the local nuances and the local market dynamics to figure out what is the right formula approach to, first of all, surface the startups that actually are viable or worthy of that investment. And number two, doing the necessary due diligence and homework to determine if they're actually solving a big enough problem. And it's just one of those things where I think we just have to be very contextual and very localized in the way that we do these things. And yes, we, there are opportunities, but I have also been of the notion and opinion over time that it depends again, what is the model? Is it B2B? Is it B2C? Is it solving a big enough problem? The way M-Pesa came out of nowhere. We saw what that did for the market when it came to mobile payments. That was a huge addressable market in that instance, but there are many other pockets and many other things that possibly are big enough problems that these startups can address. And I can tell you there's been many failures, even in the startup space, in the technology sphere, in the Kenyan marketplace, that maybe these companies were not even big enough to get their attention, but they did get some money and were usually chasing something that looked like a copy or something similar to something that had been done somewhere else. 
but the model, it doesn't work within this environment. But remember, people are chasing what looks bright and shiny, investors and also the startup founders. And they come up with this idea that they think this will actually work, but maybe they haven't done the due diligence and the homework to establish that this thing is actually viable. I don't know if that answers your question, Paris. Yes, it does. And leads me to a question I'd like to ask Katwanya, who's basically a storyteller. And you mentioned Tanki in separate conversations. I've mentioned Copycat, Mitsumi, and a few other companies that have reached the $100 million revenue mark in Kenya. And one of the questions that I always ask is, why aren't these stories getting told? Why are particular stories getting told? Why are other stories getting neglected? And so to Katronia, there's this feeling that a bunch of the success stories Moses mentioned, Tanki, are just not getting the visibility they deserve. And we sort of create a skewed narrative on what the market looks like in the country. And so the narrative sort of directs capital to particular problem areas, which may not be the problem areas that view as the highest priority. So why does this disconnect exist? Let me just start by saying that probably it's a failure of storytellers. I have to admit that, but of course there are a number of reasons for that. I just wanted to first mention the disconnect that Moses was talking about before I come back to this. I always feel like even the storytellers or even the, the speakers, if you go to an event, the speakers, whoever they focus on is something that looked a very sexy. For example, when uh, President Ruto was in, in uh, California the other day, um, every headline in, in Kenya was the most prominent one was him with the Apple CEO. But in reality in Kenya, Apple is for just small elite. The real companies that have big business in Kenya are the Chinese uh, tech companies. And of course, when you go to America, you talk of maybe Microsoft or uh, Google, but Apple is nowhere. But when you look at the headline, or uh, what was sexy for social media people was all about Apple um, CEO. Uh, and so when you come up with Apple, which uh, iPhone, which is costing 400,000, that is not something that a normal business would come and say, I'm selling this, uh, as opposed to maybe techno, which is costing maybe 5,000 or 10,000. So there's that disconnect, even with the storytellers, that what you were trying to give is something which is sexy, which is high advanced, but the, the real proper take in Kenya, for example, is when you go to a mall and you are paying your parking fee and you are given that card and the company that process that payment, that, that might not attract attention as somebody who is wielding a hype. Now, if you also listen to people talk about innovation, they start talking about how Amazon started, how how, how Apple started, but I think what Moses said, which is also my view that some of these guys who are big in the US, if they were in Kenya, they would have failed terribly because it's a completely different environment completely. So I think it, the best thing would be to look around and look at what are the best companies to see. If you can study how equity started, that makes sense. If you are, uh, look at how the equity guy, what he did, how did he get where he was, that, that to me makes more sense. 
But that story might not be, of course, Said, now equity is, uh, is high up there. But that story earlier on might have not made more sense to most people. So, Faris, I'll just go back and say, I think it's a, a failure of storytellers. But at the same time, what does the Kenyans like? Even media, there's always a criticism uh, that they only like politics. But that's what the audiences are looking for. If I put a story and nobody reacts to it, uh, and I put another story and a thousand people react to it, then I realize that the, the story that a thousand people react to is what, that's what they want to see. So that's the assumption of most storytellers, because that's what you want to see. And if you are a storyteller, of course, at the end, what makes you success? On your own right. Also, it's what type of story people like. That's also what come out as what makes you a success person. So at the end, you concentrate that and then you leave other things. So I think when you go back and now, you did, we needed to have a deliberate, that's what I was saying. We could have a deliberate way of, uh, way of marketing or the way of telling stories of startups. I think it take a lot, but as I gave an example of real estate and people are being driven to a certain place by media, but obviously there is money behind it uh, on, on such sense. So that deliberate kind of thing probably could help. Okay, thank you. But I, I, I'd actually like to push back on that a bit because the way I look at it is if you go to banking, we don't have the same problem where earning firms getting less hype than the quiet firms. If you go to agriculture, if you go to the brewery industry, any industry that you actually consider, we tend to have the firms that do getting most of the hype. But what you're telling me is that in Kenya, it's the converse. And I still don't have a clear reason as to why is it because they're in spaces that investors find interesting. So in that case, what we say is that, okay, look, the investors are the ones who are causing the hype, or is it that it's in the, the, the companies are in spaces that the techies themselves find in that interesting? What sort of is driving this disconnect between the hype and the ability of the firm to generate earnings for its shareholders and investors? Okay, the thing is, uh, when you look at it, I think the history that Moses gave earlier was when the likes of IHUB came in and everyone was talking about these spaces, which was okay and it really helped. But also on top of that, what was there? So the education that people got from that was you need to raise money, uh, you need to raise capital. That's the education that people got uh, from that period. And I think the storytellers flow with that. They flow with the, what everyone uh, in the space is talking about. So, so if you go to IHUB, that's what you get. But most Kenyan guys who are not in those hyped spaces, the guys who are doing zero startups that you might say they are doing well, but most of them shy away from publicity. They want just to do it quietly. And as long as they are making their money and they're building that business, they really want to do it that quietly. So as a storyteller, you might go and say, okay, let me look for so and talk about them. And they're like, okay, we are still not ready for that. We are still not ready to. And you realize that most people who say they are ready for the, their names to be out there. I'm sorry to say some of them lie about their success. And of course, so you, you look at some of the stories that we have seen before where somebody say they have made this amount of money or they are being some. Yeah, but at that point, 
that story makes sense. If somebody come and say they are making millions, that come, they make more sense than somebody who's at that point is just making a, a few, uh, maybe 500,000 or just a billion, uh, which to their mind is still not enough to go out there and tell the world that. So I think what people perceive that at this level, if I'm doing this level, then I, I, no, I'm a success. So my story should be told is where the, the, there's the bit of disconnect. Okay, I, I, I get that, but also my, my view will be the people who are quick to self-promote should be a signal that there's something fundamentally broken, but just let me not up on that. So just back to uh, Moses. So you, you still have this problem, a signaling problem. Uh, the guys who are most vocal about their revenues are not the ones who are generating the revenues. And particular narratives on what tech in Africa consists of. As somebody who's been a practitioner and a marketer, how do you uh, think we should resolve this issue? Sorry, I don't sure I fully understand the question. Resolve the issue in what sense? So you have a storytelling problem. You're a marketer. Yeah. So you have a situation where the people who are saying that they're doing well tend not to be doing well. And the people who are quiet about their progress tend to be doing well. And so investors instinctively go towards the people who have their story in the public. How do you resolve that particular problem? Because if the capital is to go to the people who are quote-unquote most deserving, because it's a very subjective term, but most deserving, so to speak, how do we fix that so that the narrative is more towards the companies generating real earnings and cash flow and less towards those sort of, okay, there's money available. Let me use this money. It gives me a salary. When the money stops flowing, I'm out. How do we fix that problem? And so my question is, as somebody who's built a startup and somebody who's been involved in marketing startups, so you have both ends of the spectrum, how does this get resolved? I think it's an interesting conundrum because on one hand, anyone will tell you that the most important thing that a startup must do, whether it is in a valid sense, already generating a decent amount of revenue, or they're inflating the actual revenues or activities, giving you vanity metrics, we have a hundred thousand users, but then they have zero revenue at that point in time is I think that any startup needs to fight for visibility, right? Especially with those parties who have the appetite or the interest in investing in such businesses. So being seen and being heard is critical because the worst thing that can happen to a startup is obscurity. If nobody even knows you exist, then you don't even have a shot of succeeding to raise money. So some level of hyping or creating awareness and visibility is key. Now, how that is actually done might be the way that the, the, the process changes. And it might be that rather than attending every forum and being at every event and then trying to be seen at every moment, one may want to be a bit more selective about where they're actually looking for that support and funding. But for sure, you want to make sure that there is some visibility because the prospective investor or the prospective partner on hearing your story and hearing where you are may want to invest or consider you as an opportunity for investment. On the flip side, uh, I would say for the investing class that they need to spend more time doing the due diligence and the homework on the businesses. Now, again, you remember some of these guys have like targets 
and they might visit a hundred different startups before they settle in on one, two or three of them as investment targets. Have they done enough homework to understand whether this is a viable or a sustainable investment? Could it be that maybe uh, they're simply investing in the best of the worst as opposed to finding a business that's actually a gem in the ground, so to speak? And maybe I can use an example of the company that I once worked for, Naspers, which is the business behind Geofish and subsequently OLX and the likes. Many years ago, they invested in the business in China, and the name is escapes me at the moment, but that business today is valued at billions and billions of dollars. They were very prescient in understanding that this thing had massive potential around online gaming and mobile and, and content and all these things. And the fact that they saw this so much earlier, the point that actually Naspers is a business, uh, I think up to something like 80% of the valuation was based on that investment that they made in China. Now you've got to imagine that these guys spent a fair bit of time understanding the model, looking at the future, forecasting, thinking about consumer behavior, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they made the absolute perfect bet of that business until today that business is so significant in terms of their books. Now, I would almost say the same thing here, that if we spend a bit more time interrogating and understanding these startups, looking at their potential and actually backing the ones that look like they have their long-term sustainability in there, then that becomes a good opportunity. But I think the due diligence is where now you're able to sift through the ones that really are solid and the ones that are just all hype. And I think sometimes the ones that are hype-driven have also the ability to throw the smoke screen in front of you so that you don't really look beyond the obvious and think, wow, these are the right guys. There's so much uh, whiz-bang around them that you're like, let me invest in them. But again, coming back to the fact that we do have these incredible technology startups in the market that don't make much noise. In fact, as we say in Kisweli, they want to operate in Yamaji. They don't want any visibility because they, maybe they are very successful in a very subtle way. They don't really market. Maybe they work through third parties to actually sell. And that's also okay. But I think ultimately any startup needs to get some level of visibility, but the investor needs to do the homework to make sure that it's the right call. I believe the startup that um, Naspers invested in was Tencent. I think they hold a couple. Yeah, of that is correct. It, it just came to me. Yeah, just Tencent. Correct. Yes. So there's an aphorism. The, in the short run, the market is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. And I just want to put some more context to this. So the startups have collapsed, but a bigger problem is that the funds that invested in them, which have to return capital to their LPs, have also collapsed. How do we prevent a situation where the market is written off because of the poor decisions, quote unquote, of a certain number of investors? So how do we delink poor investment decisions from this is not a market worth investing in. Are you directing that question to me? Actually, both of you, because we are about to get to the hour and then we'd open it up to the listeners. Maybe Katwana, you go first. So I want to uh, start by, first of all, we have to appreciate that sometimes we might start thinking that the, the collapsing of startups in Kenya is a, a unique thing, but the reality in the, on the ground is that uh, majority of Kenyan businesses are suffering. It's not on the tech side alone. It's on most of the small businesses in Kenya at the moment are going through a rough patch. I think probably it's because with startups, we talk much about them and also because they are visible, they are raising the money. So 
when they collapse, they seem to be a, a big story, but there are many stories out there of businesses just surviving. And the reason for this is, first of all, COVID came in and I think we have to agree that it really affected many businesses. And then straight away after COVID, we had the elections. And of course, during election period also, we have people hesitating in investing or doing business. And then after that, obviously, we have, of course, the issues of new taxes and all these costs of living going high and high. And that has affected businesses all around. It's not a unique thing at this point. So when we are talking, I think we need to have that context properly articulated. So back to your question is, uh, how do we ensure that the market is not written off? First, I think we will read this. That's why I was trying to say that it's not a unique thing. I think there are many guys who, yes, even if somebody, the guys who are running, let's say Sandy or these other startups, startups are now having a problem. I don't think these guys are going to go away and say now they are no longer going to build startups. And failure in many ways is also part of learning process. I think just sitting back and saying, oh, let's write, write off this. Uh, I think that is the wrong thing to do uh, because uh, I feel like there's a learning point uh, as like this discussion we have had a situation where we are thinking that we should have a model which you look at you in raising money. But at the same time, you need to have trying to, to build clients who in many ways would be your main investors for years. So you need to do a balanced approach, not necessarily just going, okay, I'm just raising money and raising money. And when that money is not there, the burn rate is high and all that, then you collapse. So I think this period uh, probably is a good period for the market also, uh, because people are going to learn. And of course, these questions are people asking, what did you do with this money? So next time somebody raised good money, they will start thinking, no, uh, probably I need to be measured on approach of who do I hire, how much do I pay them? And this thing, will it last me until I get stable such that the clients I get would, would sustain me. So that sustainability are going to be a feature going forward. I think it will be a feature going forward. So I think the market will correct itself properly. And uh, the question of writing it off, in my view, it should not be there. I, I think we have uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And we have people who are very psyched uh, out there to, to do these things. So it's just a lot of learning points uh, and, and we move forward. It's so funny when you're talking about all this, I just had a recollection and I'm just remembering that there's so many parallels we can draw with what's happening in Kenya and globally at the moment, this correction that has a lot of similarities to the dot-com bust probably 30 odd years ago, 25 years old back then, even when the likes of Google was coming to life. Uh, it was literally out of the ashes of, of the dot-com bust. And if you remember what happened then is a lot of businesses that were startups, almost like what's happening in Kenya right now, the whole dot-com moment was devastating in the sense that there's all this inflated valuations, business had no valid uh, models. Uh, some of the biggest investment banks had put money behind ideas. I remember there was a startup, I think called Bo, that burnt through, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars back then trying to do uh, what is today fast retail. And the reality is that I think whenever this, you know, this opportunity, this incredible technology has come out, the internet itself, and people actually wrote off the internet itself. People said the internet itself 
as a fundamental thing is not even worth investing in. And that's how bad it was. The fallout was massive. Number two, and this is interesting. I was watching a video just two days ago, and it was an interview with Stride Masiwa, uh, who's behind Liquid Intelligent Technologies, Econet, and so forth. And he said the whole of Africa receives less investment than the, the country of Singapore. Just think about that for a second. We're talking about all these things just in the context of Kenya, but the whole continent gets less investment than Singapore. So in the grand scheme of things, we are simply, in relative terms, almost a rounding error for some of these investors globally and like the big scale investments they make uh, to see a big return. We're literally a tiny a rounding error and all of that. Even when I worked for the likes of NASPAS and all that, you can imagine Kenya and Nigeria and all the experiments that were running, spending a few million dollars were simply proof of concepts for them. These were not massive investments per se in the grand scheme of things. So I think we're really early in that sort of adoption curve or opportunity moment when it comes to what's happening locally. Because of course, we're looking at this at a micro level, but in the macro level of things, we're just a tiny size relative terms to what is happening globally. And I think that gives us the opportunity to say that literally we are simply at the very early stages of this entire ecosystem growing and escalating to the point that it starts to look like something significant in the way that Singapore is apparently relative to Africa for investors. And I think, therefore, it is to be expected, again, looking at the parallels that we had with the dot-com bust, that these are things that happen, but usually out of those actions, you find the likes of Google come out of that. You find the likes of uh, Amazon came out of that. And a whole bunch of new startups that now are today big tech was burst out of that destruction. And I think we need to assume that is going to almost create the stress testing, the validation of the ones that are actually built to last versus the ones that are simply going to be fly by night and disappear. And I think we need to endow ourselves in that, that it is part of the creative process in building this startup ecosystem that 99% of them might fail, but we're going to end up with some really strong and viable startups that end up becoming very strong businesses down the road. So I don't think you're really punishing or destroying the reputation of Silicon Savannah in the process. I think it's a part of the natural progression of how these things work. You brought up an interesting point. I believe um, Microsoft, well, wanted to spend around $68 billion on Activision, which was like a multiple of the total amount of capital the entire continent has received in the last year in venture capital. So effectively, what I hear you saying is that this is a normal evolution of the market and we shouldn't be particularly worried about it. No, I think it's uh, part of the rigor. It's part of the maturation of the market that we need to go through these painful moments these corrections, and then also look at it in the context of what's happening globally to realize this is, is simply part of the growing up process, so to speak. And I think it is out of this process that we'll get stronger startups, we'll get this sort of people shifting their sort of the mental models about how this thing works. You don't just raise money and spend it. You need to create a viable business. Investors will also sharpen up in terms of what they're looking for, especially the ones who are early stage. Pretty, quite a few of them probably have lost some money in the process. But I think it's literally a journey or a process of discovery, a process of learning, a process of pain as well. And I think you never grow without pain. And I think at the end of the line, eventually, whatever that looks like, there will be growth. There will be highly sustainable models. And I think even we might find our own unique formula uh, to the way that startups and investors work to actually grow in this market. We don't have to be borrowing from Silicon Savannah. We'll find our own 
natural path through this process. Okay. So I guess it's like the extinction event that led to mammals good for the world as it is. So I'd like to hand it over to Rick. I believe um, we are largely done with the interview part. I don't have a lot of things to add, but I think I did mostly to emphasize a bit that bit of startup failure is not such a, an outlier aspect of it. It's actually expected that most startups will fail. But also speak about like sometimes in the process of failing, there are honest mistakes and then there is actual fraud that happens. Can you like speak to the just distinguishing between those two in terms of also reputation wise for a silicon savannah that is very young? Invariably, you're going to get bad actors. Yeah, this is the nature of the game. You are going to get bad actors. People who postured for years, they play with the numbers. The investors are not switched into it. I think we heard about what happened at companies like Cellulant just about a year ago, a couple of years ago when they had some situation over there in Nigeria. These things do happen. And sometimes even within the founding team, you find that there are bad actors who are not necessarily representing the full collective. It does actually happen. But more importantly, I think what we need to always think about is when we look at the collective in terms of the ecosystem, Net, are we moving in the right direction? I think so. Net, are we going through the painful learning lessons? I think so. But I think in terms of being written off wholesale, I don't think that's what actually happens. I think people also switched on enough, including the investors, to start to understand and to interrogate what are the fundamentals of this business? How are they being run? What is the founder team? And I think some of those things are discretionary. I think many investments sometimes are made on purely the gut feeling of whether these are the right people or not. I think they call it like backing the jockey who's going to actually ride the business. And ultimately, sometimes bad calls are made, but it doesn't mean that the entire industry is bad. But we need to allow ourselves the fact that there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be real and genuine mistakes. People building a startup on a flawed thesis of what is actually happening. We're going to have people who literally go in with a mindset that I'm going to get that $5 million and guess what? I'm going to eat $2 million of it and I don't care about the consequences. That also happens. And not just even in Kenya. I think even globally, we see instances of this happening. There are clear cases of fraud that also happen in Silicon Valley. So I think ultimately in the context and also the size of what we're doing here, these are not necessarily mutually exclusive things. I think they do happen. But we're looking at the collective effort and the collective outcomes can ultimately still be positive. All right. And then, Tatiana, maybe you can speak to the aspect of, I think there's a question here that I saw uh, a listener who's wondering about startups that are bidding quietly that don't get their attention. So maybe you can repeat a bit on what we can do, maybe as an ecosystem, to give visibility to those kind of startups that are grinding slowly in the corner without having raised. And the sort of addiction that especially most startups have to press releases. So I receive a lot of press releases from startups and most of them like, okay, we did a deal with this, we did that. And then sometimes there's not that much substance in it. Now it's just staying uh, at the top of the media mind. So like in terms of building substance beyond just hype, what would you speak to that in terms of also like storytelling for those kind of startups? You're right. Uh, there, are, there are many startups that send press releases. And of course, I, I see them covered. So that's there. But there are some who don't do anything when they... When they assume that they are doing well, I think they, they do little. And this is where I, I, I usually compare Safaricom to, of course, Safaricom is a multi-million uh, company. But as successful as it is, it's always trying to be on top of the mind. Uh, they are always trying to be everywhere, even the 
most small places you'll find Safaricom trying to be uh, top of the, the mind. So uh, I think this something that I said earlier that um, some of these guys are shy. They don't want to be out there. Uh, which uh, I think as Moses also mentioned, it's okay. And obviously when you look at, for example, the influencers that are all over the space saying they make a lot of money and then carry it, just say, okay, we have to go after you. So probably that thing so now uh, become a factor. But if we leave that aside and look at people who, I, I think I saw that earlier, you're a smallholder far, tech farm, we are dealing with farmers or something like that, which probably don't come out as sexy as any other as a tech company trying to do AI that most guys will be chasing after to see, okay, we need to cover this compared to somebody who is in Turkana trying to work with smallholders to get a market through technology, which is probably not going to be covered. I think the best thing would be to reach out to the writers or storytellers. All the, uh, this is me, uh, all the, when people reach out to me, Regardless of how small or you are just starting, I always try to give uh, attention to that. And uh, I also believe most of the storytellers will do that. Um, when, as long as you, you can come out with a unique perspective of what solutions you are trying to bring or what problems you are trying to sort out within the market or whichever area you are trying to, you are working through. So that is that. So you could do the cold call where you send releases as what Eric, you are talking about. But I think also reaching out uh, because most of the storytellers are, are public people. So if you really want to, to reach out to Kachwanya, you will get my number or you will get my email. It, it's something like either you go to my site and you get something okay, to how to reach me. And that's happened. And then try to build a relationship with, with it so that they're able to understand and learn uh, what you are working on. So that, that's what I'm saying that. Probably we need to build that relationship and see as you develop, as you move on, so we can keep track of what is going on. But again, also, as I started earlier, I said, there's a bit of a failure on storytelling. Part of the storytellers is such that a majority of people are chasing what is more sexy or the readers, what more readers will be reacting to in what's popularly known as clickbait. So that's a problem that obviously needs to be yeah, we need to think deeply how to sort it out uh, because uh, I think there are many startups in Kenya that don't get the, the publicity they deserve, but they are doing a very good job. And I think if we, we write about them, if we tell their stories, they will move from one step to the next level. So that, that's there. Again, also... People can tell their own stories. Um, social media and digital space has, uh, has changed this, the, the, the game for even media space. So sometimes don't wait until uh, some big media is uh, able to write about you. You can write about yourself. Create a blog, have your own blog, have a social media page. Um, when you see now, most, most, most organizations just give a press release through social media and people pick it up. I think small companies and startups don't do this much. Unfortunately, this is something that I thought the startups would be much better at. But the big guys, uh, they took this and ran with it. The startups are still struggling with this. But it's an easy thing, having a, just a WordPress blog site and having your Twitter X account or Facebook or even now TikTok 
And when you have uh, something interesting within your company, put it, it out there. It will be easier for even people who didn't know you exist to pick it from that uh, aspect. So I feel like that you can still tell your own stories because the digital space has provided that opportunity. There's literally no excuse not to be visible uh, in this time and age. But also I think uh, stories uh, should be based on substance, I think. And at the end of the day, like you overhype, I think something that Moses talked about is uh, something that we suffer a lot from. Uh, so we hype ourselves too much and then you set these expectations in the mind of investors, the public, and then you don't live up to it. So you need to associate expectations that are in line with that. So there's a question here for Moses, uh, an issue to do with uh, startups that maybe position themselves with a the mindset, uh, which is very African of, uh, it's our time to eat. So you, people spend time, but uh, to build, but it's mostly with a target of raising and then eating that money up. Do you speak to that a bit mindset and maybe speak to the entrepreneurs that are out there uh, that it's good to build solutions for problems that actually exist, not just so solutions to raise money. And I think this is a misconception, right? Because I think it reminds me when you look at the startups that have ended up becoming the Microsofts and the Googles of the world. These guys, in most instances, the underlying motivation was that they saw a genuine problem that they wanted to solve. And I'll give you a very real example just from today. Today, there's a company called Beam uh, that was started in Tanzania and they just launched in Kenya. So they launched this morning. And I had the opportunity to actually interview uh, the founder and the CEO for my podcast. And that will be probably coming out by the weekend. And one of the powerful insights he shared is that he came back from the U.S. He got in a degree at a university in Pennsylvania. He came home. His parents had a, a, a computer shop in Kariako, which is downtown Dar es Salaam. And the problem they had is that they were selling laptops to students in universities and the likes. And they wanted to market their services to these students. The problem is that these kids don't read newspapers, but all of them had what were those days, the early day Nokia phones that were pick your phones without any internet or anything. So they figured out, hang on, why don't we just get their phone numbers and then we can manually one by one send them our offers. And that actually ended up being the foundation of solving a problem for his parents' business that is now sort of 10, 11, 12 years later now become Beam, which is basically a, I think the word is conversational commerce. That's the phrase that's used to describe uh, what they do, which is basically chatbots and a system that acts as a dashboard connecting to WhatsApp, SMS and all. But this guy was in a very real situation where he was helping his parents solve a marketing stroke sales problem using technology. And I tend to find that if you think about how even Mark Zuckerberg talks about meta, you hear what the Google guy said, I think the, the whole mission was to organize the world's information. It's usually a very powerful, compelling, overarching goal to solve a big problem. Like today I was listening to a podcast about Bumble. Bumble is a dating app that focuses on a women-first approach because apparently most of the dating apps until that point, including Tinder, have been built from a male perspective, meaning that women had horrible experiences on that. On Bumble, this woman had the insight build an app that focuses on the woman's experience and that she is the instigator in that experience and also can control the way that whole thing works. It comes from a fundamental problem or an issue that then you solve using your solution. And I think that we need to be careful about, just like we've seen in Kenya historically, people chase money for the sake of money. Oh, everyone is doing quails. Let me do good quails. Oh, everyone is getting into supply chain something. Let me go to supply chain because that's where the money is. And ultimately, they're not really out there to solve a problem or to do something that is 
going to add value to humanity in one way or another. They're doing it to actually make money. And that, I think, is a big mistake because there's no sustainability or long-term appetite to push through the difficult times if you're just doing it for the money. And I think that's the thing we need to come back to. Are these guys, number one, uh, have they validated the model to solve a fundamental problem in society, in business, in life, a commercial models out there? But number two, are they genuinely passionate about what they're doing? And I know, yes, we always want to balance the books and make the money, but it's also going to be something that you do to solve a real issue that you think needs solving. And those are the businesses, in my opinion, that end up becoming successful enough, especially when the problem has sufficient scale so that it's um, a level issue. I'll give you another example that I mentioned here earlier. How could I forget this one? A Sport Pesa. Sport Pesa, I think, came into the market just about maybe 10 years ago, maybe less. And out of nowhere, I think as a startup, within two years, these guys were sponsoring Premier League teams, Formula One teams, and all the things that were happening out there to build their brand awareness. And how did they do it? They looked at the African nuance. They knew that if we can create a business where young men would spend maybe 50, 100 shillings a day to bet on their favorite sports teams or football teams, and we aggregate that across three, three million young Kenyan men, then guess what happens? You're collecting something to the order of maybe 150 million shillings a day that goes into this betting ecosystem. But the point at the end of the day is that business was perfectly suited using mobile money, et cetera, to work within this environment that we have. And I think the bottom line is we've got to build the solutions for the market. We've got to solve the problems for the market. But ultimately, the drivers also behind these organizations to attract the right investors and also satisfy their return on investment agenda to really build something that becomes sustainable and has legs for the future. Really good stuff. I think Moses, we need a class at some point on building startups. I think we need a series on st of spaces on this kind of stuff. So Katwana also, not that. Quiet, maybe to you because you've been a builder also recently. How's the market in terms of fundraising currently? And what are the, some of the challenges that you're seeing in the market in terms of building? Primarily signaling. It's a very interesting situation and I want to avoid ranting. One of the challenges you find in the fundraising market is people come in with a particular lens and somebody will decide, let's say, fintech is hot, there's too much competition, I won't invest in fintech. But the problem with that is that if you have a unique view on the fintech opportunity, so like m -Pesa as an example, or the credit apps that have popped up, you're ignored because the investor's perspective is there are too many players in this game. And you go back to 1998 and there were multiple search engines and Google emerged with what ended up being a superior theory on how consumers wanted to interact with search. So the investors in this space have, in my view, two problems. They don't understand the market or they don't understand the technology. Finding investors who understand both and are willing to create a thesis that's independent of groupthink, because at risk to myself, investors tend to be like lemmings. If a significant investor participates and has anchored your investment, the rest assume accurately the has been done and cut you checks. So if you don't fit into the pockets that they expect for your business, then you're not raising capital. That's one problem. Then you have the shift in what the investors are looking for. 
So I started raising capital for my business and quickly threw in the towel in 2021. So what happens is that at that point, growth was important because that's what the LPs told them was important. And then you shift to when the Federal Reserve starts raising interest rates and everyone says, oh no, what's important is earnings. I had an investor tell me in 2021 that profitability is relevant. And then in 2022, tell me, look, if you're not working towards profitability, we're not going to talk to you. There's a shift. And I think the key lesson I've learned from all of this is investors themselves are like us. We are all human and they don't necessarily know what's going on. They are also responding to the investors. And once you realize that we're all trying to figure it out, it makes the experience simpler and you accept that the investors don't necessarily know what they're saying. I, as an entrepreneur, have a lot of um, blind spots and everyone is trying to do the best they can in what are fairly unusual times. And I believe we are living through a Chinese castle at the moment. We're in very interesting times. So it's a very interesting experience just trying to balance the constant shifts in priority, market interests, industry interests, and, and like success. So at the end of the day, if I don't raise capital, it's a problem. But the investor themselves also needs to return money to their LPs and needs to apply their fund within a certain amount of time because their funds are time limited. So I'd say it's interesting at the moment. And everyone is holding their breath, hoping that at some point the Fed will start reducing the interest rate. Because the reality of the matter is you're not getting local capital. Right now, anybody with money is giving to the government of Kenya. Interest rates are insanely high. We're at 16%, I believe, for certain bonds. You're not going to get people to give you money for your startup unless your return is post 20, above 20%. So it, it's a very interesting situation to be in where everyone is trying to figure out how to navigate this landscape. Yeah, it, the interest rate environment is higher for longer. So I think like we've been used to for the last 10 years of building in a world of low interest. Lots of questions coming in. I, I really like the perspective of, uh, especially Moses, giving specific examples of some startups that are doing well and quietly. So if you have more, I'd love to listen. But I saw there is a question here about, uh, and either of you can speak, there's something about startups and bond rates. They raise funds. And I think what's confusing a lot of Kenyans is that a startup raises like 20 million Kenya shillings or something like that, or $20 million sometimes. At, let's say at the beginning of the year, by the end of the year, people are hearing that, okay, they're doing layoffs, they can't be able to sustain themselves and suddenly a startup end up in administration or something like that. Can you speak a little bit too, so Kenyans can understand a bit about fundraising and where that money usually goes and the band rate of some of these startups and whether the viabilities of the ideas until the next fundraising or long term in that respect. Petronia or Moses, you can start off. So I have genuine concerns around startups that I've interacted with as a business in, in competitions and forums. And I think for me, my notion of a startup, if you think about the classic examples of Airbnb, Google, and all this working out of a garage, uh, people maxing out credit cards and all that, it's very much the, a fundamental expectation of things like bootstrapping, right? So you're like stretching every shilling or every dollar to, to do more. You make a cent work like a shilling. 
to the extent that you get what you need it to be. Now, typically in a startup environment, if we're talking about a technology business, there's certain inherent costs that come into that. You'd buy, you know, server space, maybe it's AWS or Google Cloud. You'll pay for uh, developers to build your application. Maybe you've outsourced that. Maybe you have a team you've hired. The development time required, there's infrastructure costs. Uh, you probably may be working out of co-working space, maybe not. And I think for me, the thing that I find perplexing, because I come from a different context or paradigm, pre-Silicon Savannah, so to speak, we had to do so much with so little. And that meant, for instance, you bought a second-hand laptop or somebody loaned you one. You would not use your car every day. You take my tattoos on the days you're saving money on fuel. You do things that you just stretch the money to every little extent you could. And now all I notice is that when I see many of these younger startups is they all got the latest MacBooks, they're swinging around the latest iPhone 15. And I'm looking at all these gadgets and I know, yeah, you raised around, but suddenly you're pretty much the parallel of a Silicon Valley startup that's also raised $50 million. You look and feel the same. And I'm almost wondering that if you're burning all that money, creating the look, working out of a nice, fancy co-working space, when I know for a fact that three seats in that location could give you an entire office in a less fancy location that could house 20 people. And this sort of mentality, I don't know whether it exists or doesn't exist, but this tendency or maybe it's an entitlement that I can spend this money the way I want because I want to look a certain way. I want to operate from a certain office. We never had that luxury. You afforded what you could. You borrowed, begged, and, you know, possibly even stole what you could to operate. And for me, that's concerning because I'm hearing these numbers, in fact, on these WhatsApp groups just today, 22 million, 44 billion. And you're asking yourself, hang on a second, these companies didn't even exist 10 years ago. Where did the money go? Maybe they built infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm just finding it shocking because I almost feel like, where is that bootstrapping, you know, stretching, cutting costs? If we talk about Amazon, Amazon went and bought doors that they turned into tables because they couldn't afford actual tables. And I think that's part of the problem. There's this sense that the money is there to burn. Like we say sometimes, come equal to Mia. And I think that's worrying, but I think that's part of the problem, that the mentality that we don't have that approach to being very uh, frugal with our funds and therefore, hopefully to the point we get to break even or create a viable product that's actually generating enough revenue, uh, do we have that sense of, of, of being prudent with our funds? That's a very important uh, thing that you've raised. And I think um, in the investing world, it's Warren Buffett was very wealthy, but still well known for being frugal in the sense of stretch that ceiling as much as you can. And whatever you get, uh, use it well. You don't have to hire a hundred people at the same time. Do you really need these people? So I think evaluating every shilling that comes in. I, I'm from an accounting background, so I'm very concerned, especially about burn rates for some of these startups. Uh, just stretch that chilling longer. You need to cut costs often and uh, be frugal from day one so that everyone who comes in so that they're able to know that. Thanks. I have a quick point agreeing with Moses. Safaricom started with around $25 million in capital. And I believe at the IPO, by the IPO stage, Amazon had raised $100 million. This a sense that capital is cheap, that I don't think people are willing to reconcile to the reality of the market where our largest retailer hasn't hit a billion dollars in revenue and is bootstrapped largely until they got capital the other day. So some of the amounts being discussed, as Moses pointed out, are actually the amount of money that has been lost is 
I'll be careful with my language, but I'd say disgusting. <laughs> it's a lot of money that's been lost and there was so much that could have been done with it. I, I agree. Ben Roberts has joined us, so I'll also give him a few minutes to speak. Achwanya, on the topic of banners, someone is asking, what are some of the cash-conscious marketing strategies that are out there? Uh, and before maybe you answer, I would say, at Wango, at Wango Capital, we really like supporting startups that uh, are building something substantial. So if you're out there and you're building, just reach out. We'll be able to give you that visibility. And Kachwanya, what are some of the marketing strategies that are cash conscious instead of putting up a billboard on Moy Avenue to market your startup. There was once I came across a Kude Food startup, I think, billboard, very big along one of the roads, busy estates, and I was wondering how much money they're burning just to put up the billboard itself. So in that regard, like, what are some of the ways a startup can actually market themselves in, in, a, in, a, in a, something that pays attention to the pocket? I think a little bit on what Moses was talking about on the lifestyle that people lead. I, it reminded me of Access Kenya because I worked with them when they started. And the way uh, the founder was basically doing everything he was like the secretary, he was like the receptionist, was the one running out there. And he was able to build a company that came out and got acquired for those who, who know Access Kenya. Now I think they go with the name NTT or something like that. But it was acquired by uh, Dimension Data. Uh, they rebranded later. What the guy used to do was just him hustling out there and doing things by himself. But that's not the case now with the startups. People raise the money and they become big bosses. They hire expensively. And of course, hiring engineers is not a cheap thing, but I think we are trying to go big when we are literally still very small. That's the, the, the big problem. Uh, when you try to go big and literally you are very tiny, obviously you will crash in one way or another. Back to your question, I look at, I think you were mentioning Kune, the guys who started to, they were around for just, I think, I don't know if it's a month or so, then they folded or something. Oh, yeah. yeah, but I look at the, the person they were competing with, that is the lady who sell chapati and uh, madondo next to, let's say if you go to Westlands or you go to Riverside um, there, you find a lady at the corner and selling madondo and chapati there. And most guys who are in those buildings will come to get it uh, or they get the number and she delivers within those buildings. And I, I, I was just wondering. Why did these guys think that uh, you raise all that money, but you are beaten by this small machapati? That because I think word of mouth, if you start with that, if you do a good job, and this is going back to uh, people with clients, if you're just raising money and you don't have clients, of course, this is not going to apply to you. But people with clients, if you do a good job, as client being the king uh, of your business and you give uh, them a good service, and then they go out there and market you. So that is number one. Um, they will always market you. So word of mouth is like if somebody refer you, if a friend refer you to another uh, service provider, you always don't question. You always just say, okay, so-and-so told me you are good, we go. So referral is one big aspect, which I hope for that question you can go by. The other one, of course, is I said this earlier, digital space. You can market yourself a lot on digital space. I'm, I'm just looking at, there are some people, though they use methods that people may uh, question, like this guy called, I think he's called Cairo. He's selling cars, he's car dealers. And uh, he's using Twitter uh, in, in a way that's so interesting. And, and I've seen this, that uh, 
uh, you can use digital space to get your your message out there. Uh, uh, so as long as you learn how the the, the internet work, what what to drive people, then you can use it uh, in a more cheaper. Actually, it's cheaper because you just need to have account, so the, you don't even need to spend. Of course, the next level would be now go to the media space and maybe put an ad and there. Yeah, but that of course for a startup might not be where you would be able to to afford. And then finally, I also think networking and uh, partnerships is one big thing. So if, for example, you have a good idea, then you can try to partner with either media houses, you partner with storytellers, you partner with the big companies which already have a bigger reach. So partnerships and uh, partnerships and networking, I think is one also one area or one way that you can use that you won't have to spend much and, and you get your message out there uh, properly. Oh. Well, I think you've covered the majority of the points. I think localized marketing is actually much more effective than some of these kind of marketing that you're doing on billboards or for the kind of stuff. I see a couple of people in the audience who are very familiar. I see Bankemone. And I think Janet is also in the audience. I've seen her build uh, her marketing platform also. A very good marketer on social media uh, has built a good audience over there also. So Moses, back to you before I maybe go back to Robert, who's joined us again. Yeah, I talked about marketing and of course that's my day job, helping brands and so forth, but also a digital, I suppose, personal brand myself. I've been blogging for over 10, 15 years now. It's been so rewarding for the business. So a lot of business and clients come to us because of the content I put out. But I want to share like a very simple anecdote of my barber, the barber shop I go to. And the guy there was a 20-something-year-old guy. He posts pictures and videos of what he does on TikTok. And the last time I was with him, he told me that not 50 to 60% of his clients now come to him because he posts this stuff on TikTok, right? And I think TikTok for me in particular is incredible because I'm not the kind of person who's going to dance or twerk on it, but I would happily share videos that talking ad or slideshows and things. And I have been experimenting. And quite recently, I had a, two images that I posted with music on TikTok uh, when I had the Starlink uh, gadget for about three weeks uh, when I was testing it, uh, which I'll be posting about soon. But it was incredible because that thing is still there and it's almost at 40,000 views. Now, no media, no ads, no fancy. I only have a few hundred followers on TikTok. And I'm just thinking to myself, a barber is telling me 60% of his business is now on TikTok. I have experimented and seen videos get some decent engagement. But if you're a startup today and clearly, again, bootstrapping and being very economical with your spend, there are opportunities on platforms like TikTok, LinkedIn for thought leadership, where you can do newsletters and create content. And even what you guys are doing at Mango right now here, creating forums for discourses on various topics. Uh, these are some of the ways that you can build the brand and also bring in potential investors, potential customers and partners to work with you. But absolutely at the core of it, I believe is content, right? If your content is good and it's educational, informative, possibly inspiring, and, and even possibly to some extent entertaining, then I think you have a shot at actually winning business, winning brand equity and visibility, and also down the road, winning those investors through showing them what you're actually doing on the ground and not hyping it per se, but communicating in a very authentic way what you're actually doing. So those are some of the ways I think from a marketing standpoint, no business, a startup does not have any business buying billboards um, when they can win on digital platforms in this manner. 
Definitely. Mamamboga is on the ground uh, marketing uh, herself. I don't know why you need a, a, a billboard to invite people to your Kibandaski. In that regard, I think something that you spoke about most is that it's very good. And I've also learned by building Mwango, since I'm a founder also, it's authenticity. Like just being real can help you a long way in terms of winning uh, the audience. Just telling people uh, where you're go doing right, what you're doing wrong, what you're learning in the process. I think it helps build a lot of trust with customers. Uh, a lot of some of the brands that you find out there, they, they you build yourself so far away from the customer that sometimes you lose touch with what the customer actually really needs at the end of the day. So I think that's important as well as you try to build. I'd, I'd like to look around and see if there are more questions. But in the meantime, is there anyone with comments on how we can build better startups in Kenya and Africa that are built maybe to last? Uh, how do we build that uh, in the Kenyan landscape? Because I think uh, lately we are inundated a lot with uh, a lot of these startups which are failing in the sense of they raise a series A and they're not able to raise the next series. Uh, and then they're ending up spoiling the kind of name. I think it's expected, of course, for startups to fail, but how can we build uh, resilient and build to last businesses? From your experience, uh, Moses and also Kachwanya and Faris. Maybe, uh, Moses, you can start. How do we build long-lasting businesses? So I think it goes back to like business principles or business fundamentals. What is this business? What does it exist? Why does it exist? What problem does it solve? I think that's one of the most important things. If the underpinning idea is, is solid and it solves a problem for a big enough market, then you're going to build a sustainable business. Now, big is relative, right? You could be a big business that's serving 100 corporate clients. It could be a big business serving 5 million customers. It's all a question of context. But at the end of it, it's got to be able to generate a sufficient amount of revenue cover its costs and have a margin that actually keeps it in business long-term. Uh, the second thing I think has to be around the teams or the leadership behind that business. I think talent is a, is a crucial part uh, of the modern startup, meaning that you have to have the right people on board. I know maybe that's how the cliche, not everyone can be a CEO, not everyone can be a CIO, not everyone can be the head of marketing, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to fill those roles and you've got to make sure that these people are the right fit or you have what I call a hybrid, somebody who's able to do two or three or four things at the same time. I think you're referring to Jonathan Soman at Access Kenya, who did a lot of the stuff himself. So you find that there is opportunities also to find teams where if you can't afford to have five different people, three people who can overlap, but more importantly, can do a good enough job so that the costs of running that startup are manageable, right? You can't have 20 people in a startup that actually can only afford five. The other thing I think that is critical is those business processes, right? How do you actually run and operate the business? And I think this comes down to processes, being things like compliant, doing things properly, making sure that there's clear sense of, I think the word is governance in the way the business is operated. But I think fundamentally the process is how do you actually operate as a business? Are you operating it juakali or do you operate it in a way that shows that you document everything, you know, proper accounts? And this is something that startups of all sizes um, tend to get wrong at the beginning. You do things a little bit juakali because you're just getting started, right? But how do you start to move to a place where their systems, their processes, the way the business actually is run is done well? And I think this is a process also learning for the founding team or the founder where you also pick up skills, uh, what you don't know. Maybe you did a computer engineering degree in the university, but there's no reason why you can't go and take courses and learn how to actually run the day-to-day -day aspects of the business. And I think with that, over time, if you have those ingredients in there, then those three sort of ingredients and the business can actually become viable in the long term. Kachwane? 
Yeah, yeah. I think the processes uh, is important. And I think I, I feel like most founders are very attached to their business. So they, they don't know when to let some parts go. So some people, uh, what I see them is uh, they sort of, the accountants, they mix their own personal finances, with their business finances. And then they are not able to bring professional accountants, for example, in the company. And when they bring them, the, the, the department is not when professionalized. So that's also a, always uh, a problem for most founders. They, so you need to probably trust that professionals that you bring in the company are able to do their job. Of course, the issue here now is also to get the right people, uh, the right talents uh, who you can trust, and then they can build the, the company, uh, which means even when you are not there, uh, the whole thing will run uh, professionally. Uh, so I think that is so important that uh, the talents uh, recruitment is done properly and in good time uh, so that you don't hold on some things which are you are not expert in for too long such that you start hurting your business while you think uh, you know it all. Of course, the other thing would be research. I feel like uh, most businesses, especially startups, uh, we are trying to, for example, uh, personally, there is a time when I build not on Facebook, I would call it. It used to be called Liborian when I used to be a techie those days. And at that point, I was trying to compete with the likes of Facebook and Twitter. And when you look at that, later on, I was like, okay, that would have worked if I was in probably in the US and I could get all this endless funding. But in Kenya, that was not going to work anyway. So. Probably the best thing would be to do a research. And when we start building a business, you build business that's really solving a problem. I see most tech, uh, startups, for example, trying to solve cultural problem in the country. Majority of them going, oh, we are going to connect farmers to the market. But the reality is that's not the problem. Those farmers, the assumption is if I can get the, the one farmer from Na Nanyuki to come to Nairobi or, or connect to somebody in Nairobi, that's I'm solving, I'm solving a problem. But I don't think that's the problem of that farmer. So probably the best thing would be to do a research and find out that maybe that's not the problem. The problem is maybe the soil type that they are using and they're not the right one. But we are trying to solve the problem which in, in some cases either do not exist or exist in our minds. Uh, and I, I feel like uh, proper research um, for startups uh, would be much better such that even when you are raising money, because you can raise money, but you're trying to solve this problem, which doesn't exist. So that when you are left alone, you burn all this money. And even if you don't burn it, we are talking about burning it. Maybe you can be using it in a proper way, trying to stretch it as much as possible, but there's no problem you are sorting. There's no traction you are getting on the ground. So at the end, you'll have raised a lot of money, but there's nothing you have sorted out. So then again, you crash. Ben Roberts. Hi. Thank you. You messaged me and said, I just want to speak, but I like to listen sometimes, but I've enjoyed this and uh, I've heard some really good points. Right? And uh, I would just say, look, Kenya is a really great place to come and experiment on new things. If you are looking at trying to implement digital services, digital technologies, digital businesses in Africa, it's probably the best place to come or, or set up or do something. We've got everything right. I was just in 
California last week and the president and the, and the American ambassador were pitching Kenya as a destination for technology for startups through investment in tech. And it's great. And they did a great job and everything is good. We have the skills, we have infrastructure. We have all these wonderful things, best people coming out of universities. We have funding coming into VCs, but it's also this, the theme is it's a gateway to Africa. So if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere in Africa. It is New York city of Africa. Why are not all startups failing? Well, not everything, not every idea is a good one, but also we talked a lot, a lot of Kune mentioned, it's a great one to talk about, but when that failed, people were very critical of Kune and saying, oh. This is terrible. They've employed all these people and now they're shutting down and everything else. But he had an idea. It wasn't a great one, but he tried it and stuck at it and employed some people for a while. Um, and I hear a lot of hit, chats here sweating about investors' money being lost. Now, the investors were not from Kenya. The investors were from elsewhere. The money came into the Kenyan economy and bought Kenyan food and employed Kenyan people. Was the money wasted? I don't think so. It wasn't my money, so I don't have a problem with, with that. Why are we worrying about where in VCs from California money getting wasted if it employed Kenyans and, and bought food and fed Kenyans for, for a year or so in, in its short burn? So I'm sorry I'm being a bit controversial here, but I think uh, these are good things to raise. And Moses talked a lot about Sport Pesa, and I think that's the best example. We've forgotten about it now, but I came to Kenya in 2013. Sport Pesa just started in about 2013. By 2018, it was so big, and I went to a Formula One race, and I met the boss of the Force India team, and uh, by that stage, he said, oh, you're from Kenya. Oh, some guys from Kenya came to see me the other day. And I said, oh, was it Sport Bessa? And he said, yes, it was. A year later, they were sponsoring Formula One. This is a six-year-old company uh, who was spending so much money. They were sponsoring Emerson. They were sponsoring Formula One. Yet somehow, they're too successful, and they got chased away. And where are they now? They got shut down. The government regulated them. They didn't just regulate them and say, let's deal with this gambling problem. It was almost like a shutdown. We're almost seeing the same with WorldCoin right now. WorldCoin comes in, it's not like probably, probably making no profits in Kenya. It, it, it grows and people are signing up and then there's a shutdown. Really why I'm saying this, are we ready for really high growth startups? I think we seem to be ready for businesses that are there and employ a few people and take over. But when a company does too well in Kenya, like Sport Pesso or WorldCoin, seems to do too well too fast we're all too rapid to close it down so we need to think about this are we really thinking of high growth startups should we be thinking of digital businesses that are not with the same model and uh, i just think if we can learn lessons from what is going on the employees of those companies will learn lessons they'll learn what to do right in the next business you learn more from being in a failed business, I think, than being in a successful business. That is my, that's my thoughts. I've really enjoyed tonight. I've had great insights from all of the panelists, but I think it's, yeah, particularly the, the examples have been mentioned, Sport Pesa, Kune, I think really speak to a lot of the problems of what's really going wrong. Yeah. So let's, we should stop thinking, sweating too much on analyzing which VC lost their money. But let's look at what are the real macro problems, what is really going wrong, and what can we do better to make business more conducive in the country. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Ben, for sharing that. Um, I think it should be closing now. We are just above the two-hour mark in terms of conversation. But we definitely have a follow-up on this. Uh, it seems like a very hot topic. Um, I think it's very important to share 
examples of successful businesses that are going on around and uh, so that people can learn from them. And I think I was listening a lot to the uh, Spotify CEOs today on an interview and he was sharing about his early days of on starting Spotify and how that uh, went along. And I think from his experience, he thinks like uh, the way for people to learn how to do well in terms of businesses is almost always to start with uh, sharing uh, who sharing some of the successes and failures of the businesses that have gone before us so that you can be able to pick up the points as Ben Roberts has said and see what exactly has worked and what has not worked. They think uh, in terms of shaming a lot of founders into not sharing some of the lessons they reflected on, I think that's something we've done uh, a bit badly. So maybe we can encourage them to share a little bit, something like an exit interview so they can be able to share with us some of the lessons that they reflected on. Uh, so as we close, I just want to give you maybe um, a minute each of you so that you can be able to share some of the thoughts that maybe we've not captured and maybe to summarize some of the things that we've done. So I'll start with uh, Pachuana and then Moses and then we'll close with Faris and then Ben Roberts. If you had something to add, you can also add. So Pachuana, take it away. Thank you very much for organizing this. Uh, I think I've also learned a lot from the other speakers and the contributions. So yeah, I, I, I think that back to what Ben Robert was saying, I don't think people are worried much about whether they, the guys uh, who funded these people lose money. I think people are just worried about people starting the businesses are not not succeeding that much. So probably it's worry about what, what people are trying to do and whether they're sorting the real problem. And some of our discussion is necessary, not necessarily worrying, but actually trying to build up and, and try to analyze what, what's going wrong actually with this kind of uh, things that we are, we are working um, on my part, I think um, to build better startups in Kenya, I think we need a, a balance. Uh, first, I hope and I always wish that we could have a local funding mechanism. I hope that we could try to build up a, a venture capital in a way that locally funded in a way. Uh, because I feel like that is possible. The, the money where I see people investing around and coming up that they were conned here and there on pyramid schemes is a lot. Um, and I think that money, if, if people within the startup space uh, could build also a funding kind of startup, that I think that would be really good. Uh, but as much as you try to raise capital, I always feel like the, the balance approach would be the best thing. If you can raise the capital, it's good. But if you can bootstrap and also think, even when you're raising capital, I think it's the best way would be to, to think about getting clientele and building a business which has foundation in terms of customers. Uh, I think that is the best way such that uh, whether funding dries up uh, in one way because of one reason or another, then your clients still will be the funders uh, as, as that has always been the case. And then, of course, uh, we... As a space, we need to tell our stories better. And also, I think we need to uh, ensure that those uh, startups that's doing very well and their story are not being told, I think we need to reflect and start telling those stories properly. Uh, and uh, finally, also, as I had said earlier, people can tell their own stories. So don't sit back if you are doing startups and your story is not being told. Social media is a great space now for marketing and storytelling. So just run away with it, whether it's TikTok, whether it's eggs, 
Uh, Facebook, Instagram, all these spaces are great. And they have a lot of people these days. I mean, if you look at the stats from uh, Communication Authority of Kenya, of how many Kenyans are online, there are 8 millions of people in all, on most of these uh, places. And the reach is out there, like Safaricom, Safaricom network is almost everywhere. So people have internet in so many remote areas. So your client will be as far as you can go. Yeah. So thank you very much, Eric. Thank you, Kachwana. Moses? I think the thing I'd like to say, and of course I've been in this space now for over 20 years, in the early days of the internet in the country. And I think for me, uh, several things come to mind. Number one, building viable startups. I think it starts with the idea or rather being as candid and as honest as possible as to whether the idea has a real shot at success. And if you look again, like we saw what Popesa did with a very strong idea in a very short period of time was rivaling the biggest companies in the country. We need to think big like that. And I think why I'm saying that is if you look at places like Israel, look at places like India, the startups that have come out of some of those markets, and I'm pointing those ones out specifically because the model and the approach may not have been Silicon Valley-esque. It may not have been the way that it happened in Silicon Valley, but we know for a fact that in Israel, where they've built a reputation for building incredible technology startups in, say, cybersecurity, for instance, or security-focused solutions. And that, again, is the legacy of their history. But these are companies that have gone on merit to become multi-billion dollar businesses. We see in India some of the startups that are there and what they've become over time. And I like to bring up these two markets because I think there are certain parallels we can draw with them. There's a lot of things we share in common, uh, given the makeup and the style of the way our economies and our markets work in Africa and in Kenya, for that matter. That's the one thing. Number two, I think when it comes to the way that the businesses are actually built, the way we actually run them, I think there's a lot of grooming, a lot of uh, finishing school required so that our startups can actually be run well. And that means, again, it may not be the classic go to get an MBA and that sort of story, but at a very sort of fundamental level, how do we equip our startups so that the leadership teams in those organizations actually have some sort of minimal training, minimum understanding around the basics? How do you do your books? How do you hire people? How do you build good culture? How do you run your business day to day? And of course, there's a lot of content online that is accessible for free, but we need that because a leader or a startup founder who builds a solid business, the Mark Zuckerbergs are one in a billion, literally. They're anomalies, they're outliers from the normal, but the rest of us need to work at it and become more competent at how we actually run our businesses. And then I think maybe the third thing that's critical is what's the horizon? What is the ambition? Where, we, where is this business going? Are you building for Kenya? Are you building for Africa? Are you building for the world? The guy today who launched his conversational platform for messaging, his ambition is massive. As you hear the podcast, this guy is talking already about Middle East. He's talking about Asia. We have interest. We have customers abroad. abroad. Uh, yesterday, I was in another podcasting session with an EV uh, manufacturer of bikes. He says they're already in discussions with companies in South America, where again, there's some similarities with some of those economies and African economies and the cultures where they've seen a context for this bike that they've innovated here, of course, built respect with people in China, but they are seeing the opportunity to take it to South America. How incredible is that? These are Kenyan-owned companies potentially supporting technology like that globally. So I think we've got to think bigger. We've got to think beyond Kenya. We've got to think beyond Africa and building products and services of excellence so that we're not just building a pretty good Kenyan company, 
we're building potentially a global business with a great product. Yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you. Great. Paris or Ben, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, let me just share some quick thoughts. The thing we forget, and these are now my unvarnished thoughts earlier, I was just trying to get the input from the panelists. Our investors are in the same boat as us as startups. They're startup investment firms. There is no history of investing in venture capital in this part of the world. So I'll use a very sarcastic term and forgive me, it's the blind leading the stupid. So our investors are also losing money on this. And so everyone is benefiting and everyone is learning. Like in the case of Kune, people locally learned. And I'll use an example that's partial to Ben in particular. I remember when Altec bought in the late aughts, they really struggled with that investment. They ended up losing money. Liquid Intelligent Technologies was actually able to transform that same investment that one person had seen as a demon into one of the larger telcos in this part of the world and one of the largest data center providers. So we need to accept that we are all trying to figure this out. We're in a frontier market. Our population is changing and we don't know what we are doing and we're trying to do the best we can. Obviously, there are matters around trust, ethics. I've dealt with that personally. That has to be dealt with, but it's beyond our scope. That's like the government needs to deal with the judiciary rule of law, etc. And finally, to the startups, my feedback is this. Profit is an, op an opinion, cash is real. When you're done with all your reporting, how much money is left in the bank at the end of the year? That's like the only thing that matters. It's a lesson I learned the painful way, but it's one of the most important lessons I learned because regardless of what the market thinks, having the dry powder to be able to weather a storm is invaluable. Those are all my thoughts. Thank you. Now, Ben, do you have anything to watch? No, I, actually, it's hard to... Faris has put it very well, I, um, I've got to say, uh, I, but the only thing we're perhaps talking about the state of startups today, because we're seeing some failures recently, but it, it would be better if we could see some more successes who are still going. We've talked about a massive success at Port Pesa, they're no longer around, but if I went to Nigeria and I turned up in some high-end club, yacht club, I don't know, some place where the rich people go, right? I would find probably half a dozen startup companies who'd got really rich and really what we have missed in Kenya, we're not having those flamboyant characters. We talked about storytelling a lot earlier uh, and, and people who have got successful have tended to go quiet and be, be shrewd about it and not tell their stories. And, and Fares mentioned the, the KDN days, but someone like Norshed Morali, he got very rich from technology in, in Kenya, but was a very private person. But, but those who have been more vocal and more open about what they're doing in tech have not been quite so successful. Whereas in Nigeria, we see these titans of technology have got rich, they've exited and they've done some amazing things. And that's what we're lacking in Kenya. So I'd rather talk about more successes than over think about the failures, if that makes sense. Yep, I get you. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for the time that you've taken, two hours of your time to come and share some of the insights that you've learned in the, in the business of startups. 
there's a lot more to learn from all this. And I hope that at some point we have a follow-up spaces to discuss uh, some of the key learning that we've had. I hope some of the founders who were built and maybe some of them who have failed and succeeded can also join us at some point also to share that. Now, uh, really thank you so much for joining us. I should uh, give a few shout outs to some familiar faces in the audience. I see Bankelele Tech Trends, Brian, Eric, uh, Captain, uh, Janet, especially. Thank you all for definitely making time to come and be with us this evening. Moses, Kachuanya, Fares, and Ben, also thank you so much for coming and speaking and sharing your insights. At some point, Ben, we should have you back to tell us what you saw in California when you were marketing Kenya, so that you can be able to learn from how I think you're enjoying the thing. Uh, the ambassador in being one of the four point ten of market of the Kenya over there. So I think we'll come and hear from you some more soon. On that note, uh, I should say thank you all and, and just keep posted on our timeline to get more content from us.